out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This time it's going to be all the way from America, the one and only Jim Basnight, one-time member of the Mobilies who were around, I do believe, in the late 70s. Anyway, you're going to find out more about the band, Jim, and also the book that he's been writing on Sonny Boy Williamson. So, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. And from then on, you'll find out more about his career, life, and so much more. Anyway, Jim, tell us about the early formative years and musical influences. It's over to you. I was born in 1957. I'm 63. Um, I was into the Beatles, of course, was a real young kid. And uh, my dad took me to uh, help and Hard Day's Night movies and those kind of that sort of got me interested in the Beatles when I was a pretty young guy. Um, and then I just got heavily into records, the Kinks, the Rolling Stones, uh, the Who. And uh, and Jimi Hendrix was a big awakening for me, too. And I guess he was from Seattle. So I I just immediately kind of was drawn to that. Uh, Frank Zappa and all that kind of stuff in the 60s, uh, the Doors and uh and then I kind of went through a dormant period, uh, the heavy rock thing like Zeppelin and Deep Purple and um, Grand Funk and all that kind of stuff was was popular. And I kind of got into other things and I was kind of I was into music, but, um, you know, the Beatles broke up and Jimi Hendrix died and just it was kind of a weird time. And then I really got completely I, I at that point, I was kind of leaning more towards being a uh, a lawyer or something like all these things my dad wanted me to be my grandpa and stuff but uh at that point in 1971 i got t-rex electric warrior album and was very very drawn to that and um from there i got alice cooper of course was the glam rock star here in the united states and I listened to those records a lot. And then I found out about David Bowie. Uh, I listened to her changes on the radio when it was a single. It really didn't get any airplay. It just got played once or twice on the local AM station here in Seattle. But I happened to be lucky and hear one of those few times and really liked it. And then shortly after that, I heard about Ziggy. And uh, that really was interesting to me, just the whole concept of his look and um the the music was fantastic i loved changes and then i i didn't really pick up on hunky dory until after ziggy but i got ziggy right when it came out or shortly after it came out and uh at that point i was hooked david i was really into bowie and really into all the bands that he um promoted such as the stooges and uh the velvets and uh of course Martha hoople yeah. And then, of course, I heard Slade. I got that S-L-A-Y-E-D record that you you probably remember that record. It came over here, out over here on the same title. Uh, I think it was in late 72. I got that album and was just really blown away by that. It was crazy about that. And, uh, um, you know, so those were my favorites. And, well, another really big one for me was the New York Dolls first album. Uh, when that oh. first came out in the summer of uh, 73, that was a big awakening for me. And, of course, a lot of people who later went on to be punk rock band members and such, you know. So that was a really big uh, kind of a starting point for punk rock in a lot of ways. Um, so, 
that that's my story and i think it's parallels yours to a great degree <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting well obviously the 60s were just a slightly you know a blur of being in a nappy and then probably i mean i come from quite a working a working class background uh, my parents were sort of you know and we lived in the countryside so you know there wasn't you know at the time you don't really sort of you can't compare and contrast you can't even go on you know the internet <laughs> In the 60s, we didn't even have a phone until the late 70s in the house, so we'd have to go to the phone box. Wow. But I did realise that when my parents got married in the late sort of 50s, I mean, it was that generation that never had debt. They never got into any debt. So they would save money and then basically, you know, buy something and they built, you know, a bungalow, I suppose. And um, mm -hmm. so my dad, when he, you know, he had records and he had, you know, he was fairly big on Elvis and he loved all that. But then when he got married, he oh. sold everything. So we didn't get a record player in the house until the very early 70s. And I suppose wow. at that stage, my mum used to listen to the radio in the 60s, Radio 2, which was kind of soft pop. So there was all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff like uh, Burt Backrack and L. David and, and Scylla Black and, and, you know, kind of easy listening. And yeah. the Carpenters were another massive band. But, you know, Top of the yeah. Pops on a Thursday night was kind of huge in our house. And, you know, the rate, you know, the top 20 or the top 40 on a Sunday evening when you sit it, sit down and listen to that, that was great. And then in the very early 70s, we got a record player. And my, my brother, who was seven years older than me, so he's probably your age, he brought uh -huh. home, you know, he got sort of Sergeant Pepper by the Beatles, mm -hmm. Goodbye mm -hmm. Yellow Brick Road, Mm -hmm. the best of Simon and Garfunkel, you know, oh, yeah. the records were like unbelievable. And looking back on it, I didn't really, you know, I sort of now realise the Beatles had only just broken up three years, you know, but yeah, yeah, it seemed like a completely different chapter that had gone, it was over, you know, and then you say, they were quite young then. <laughs> it was like, yeah. I can see it, it was kind of strange, but he, you know, obviously forbid me to go in his room to play these records. And obviously you sneak into the room and you play them and you get quite mesmerised by you know, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and then, you know, there was a track on side two of Sergeant Pepper, Good Morning, which I was obsessed with. But then as yeah. he got developed, as he developed, he was going in the world of accountancy, so he got into all the prog rock stuff, you know, he really loved prog rock. So I sure. also have a love of prog, prog rock, until oh, cool. you know, fast forward to the 80s, when I suddenly started getting into the indie kind of not post-punk, but it was more the indie stuff that I started hearing, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, you know, John Peel, this DJ, used to play. And um, obviously the NME started to come into my life. And you started wanting your own bands, I suppose, and go to gigs. So I didn't want, I, I wasn't going to go and see Yes and Genesis and, you know, you know ELP. Um, it was mm -hmm. going to be, you know, scratchy little bands down at the little art centres. So, um, so that was oh, kind cool. of how, how things developed. So... But you obviously weren't going to be just a fan. You were going to become a musician. So how did your 70s then progress? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Um, the, right after the point where I, where I listened to those albums that I just uh, rattled off, uh, I you know, I got further into it. I went and got the old, the first early Stooges albums. I got the Flamin' Groovies. I got, uh, you know, a whole variety of, of, of you know, uh, British uh, acts that were kind of underground. And, uh, you know, I basically started hanging around the record stores, of course, back then. You see, I, we had record a record player very early. My dad was kind of a record person. My mom, too. We had records rec uh, records around the house. And uh, my mom had, uh, you know, early 
60s 45s like you know from the era of you know r&b in in new york and in the real early 60s and then of course the the golden age of rock and roll elvis and that kind of stuff and so um you know i was i had already been acquainted with some of that stuff and um uh so what happened was i was just a, a creature of record stores basically starting from about the era of t-rex and david bowie all the way through to when I first started meeting people at these record stores who were also into the similar kind of stuff. And we congregated and we created a, a little fanzine called Chatterbox, which was named for the New York Dolls song um, that Johnny Thunder sang. And uh, we put out these, these magazines uh, and we just sort of got started getting credential with the media, getting on mailing lists and stuff like that and getting backstage passes and the opportunities to meet the bands when they came to town and we were all in high school and shortly after that and and uh and uh you know got into doing that and then formed bands and started writing songs i started writing songs when i was like right after my senior year in high school and uh they went really well and we put this band together called the mice which was me and the a editor of chatterbox on drums and uh my one of my best friends growing up uh, on bass and then my girlfriend singing backups. And we kind of, we kind of aimed that towards, uh, it was kind of similar to uh, the Velvet Underground in a lot of ways. Um, and that was sort of the touchstone there, but also uh, television was something that was really interesting to me early on before they put out an album. I had that little Johnny Jewel single. And so I was kind of focused on their trip and it reminded me, uh, we were kind of into that whole early New York scene and, that stuff. So basically we had, that was our band and we started playing and we were part of the first do it yourself punk rock show on the West coast, which was, um, on May 1st, 1976 with, um, a couple other bands that was, that was in Seattle. And, and, uh, this is according to a number of historians and, uh, it was actually a week before the first one DIY show in, in London. Uh, actually. Um, and so I think Susie and the Banshees was on that too. But anyway, this was a kind of an early thing that we were in on real early here, but it was kind of out of the media limelight being in Seattle and or, which was by no means a major metropolitan media center like it is now. And so uh, we we're kind of out here in the, in the wilderness and doing that. And then, um, and then uh, the Ramones came to town in uh, March of 1977, and we opened for them. And Chatterbox was the magazine sponsored the event, and um, that was a big deal for me. They liked our band and said a lot of nice things to me. And how about we'd be a big hit in New York? And blah 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 blah. So I moved to New York City, and then uh, <laughs> at 19 years old, and. Um, and it was a, it was kind of a rough road. I was there for about six months, but I saw an amazing amount of shows, a uh, lot of great music from there, and also bands that were traveling there, and and just hearing a lot of stuff on the club, uh, in the clubs, and things like that that I probably wouldn't have been exposed to in Seattle. And so after that experience, I met a lot of cool people that I stayed in touch with and such. And then I uh, went back to Seattle and uh, put out a 45, which was something that everyone was doing. I don't know if you remember that time frame or, or read about it, but everyone was putting out indie 45s, of course, you know. Yeah. And so I put out a 45 here in Seattle in late 1977, but it came out the first week of 1978. 
Um, and that was kind of a local, so it created a little bit of a local buzz and uh, put together a band around that. And that was this band, The Moberlies, which um, that came together in, by late 78 um, and uh, was together in that first version of the band until late 79. But we did a bunch of recording and didn't get a major record deal. We were working with a couple of management companies and stuff that had bands with major labels and things. But we didn't get a deal. And so the band kind of got discouraged and we were kind of broke and, you know, weren't able to really work. Like bands at that time in Seattle were were working, but they're playing in, in cover places. And we sort of rejected that. And we only did originals and were, you know, staunch about that. And so we were working kind of this sort of, circuit that didn't exist then that now is pretty have actually had a, a huge success of course in the early 90s and stuff but basically um you know we we uh put out this album that came out in the first week of 1980 and that got quite a bit of national attention uh, publications like trouser press and new york rocker and bump and a few others uh liked it and said a lot of nice things about it and so i moved back to new york in later 1980 and was there for about three and a half years um and put together a new version of the mobile release because i really didn't have a band to bring with me but i just got a new band together there around the, the album and and uh you know played around the new york area did a lot of gigs with a lot of people um and that's a whole story in and of itself. I, I guess, how much far do you want me to go? Yeah, I'm happy well, to talk. It, was, it was quite an interesting time because I've sort of done a lot of interviews with people from New York at that period, you know, because you had you had CBGBs, you had Max's Kansas City, and then a bit later mm -hmm. you had the Mud Club. But then what was quite fascinating, because it was kind of the, the punk scene, you know, the television and the Ramones, but then you had this kind of the psycho rockabilly scene as well with bands like Absolutely. The and the Rock Cats. And yes. kind of crazy, yeah. And, and the and the most of them came from Essex in England. You could hardly right. play an instrument, and they got this guy called Lee Black Childers, who'd worked yes. with David Bowie and Man, May, Main Man, Main Man. Uh -huh, that's Tony, right. Tony DeFries. I met him. And um, this kind of really beautiful looking young kid called Smutty Smith, I think that was his name, who right. had uh -huh. amazing Enough tattoos, goes yeah. from sort of Essex, you know, gets seen by Lee on a dance floor or in a club. Says that's mm -hmm. great, you know. I'll take you to New York, doesn't matter. I'll put you in a band. We haven't mm -hmm. got the instruments, but let's worry about that later. And he gets photographed with people by, you know, Robert Maplethorpe meets Andy Warhol. They put a band together. That's an amazing story. And uh, Levi, Levi Dexter, um, and I are somewhat Facebook friends and stuff like that. But yeah, the, I remember those guys, and that was what was going on. And of course, the Stray Cats were from Long Island, and they came to England to, and really made it over there because rockabilly was was really hip uh, in England before it was in America. It was really something that came out of England, although obviously it was something that was from a very long time ago. And it's amazing too that Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent, two of the more important, you know, artists of the rockabilly genre, I guess were pretty much kind of over in the United States and they went over to England and were really becoming pretty big stars when they had that the car accident, the famous car accident that, you know, yeah. which is of course how Mark Boland's career ended tragically. It was a car accident there, you know, and so, but it's anyway, true. we're getting side sidewise here. We are getting <laughs> slightly sidewise, but it was interesting because actually I, I sort of spoke to various members from the, the Rockettes and obviously they were the authentic thing. And then the stray cats come along, they go to England, 
So, you know, they right. have a couple of singles, they get walloped, you know, that is absolutely big time. And they get yeah. into another league, a bit like, a, you know, CBGB's with Blondie. Suddenly, right. you know, it's like big fans, so. and suddenly, like, Blondie are the ones who just go, and everyone else is going, oh, a bit jealous about this. Well, Not talking good. heads were really, talking heads were really big. Uh, I don't know if they were as big in England, but they were really, really big over here. Yeah. Remember they, talking, they, yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they, they definitely sort of made the jump from the club into, you know, I mean... We had those kind of identity, you would have the same arty late night cinema film things and you had uh, the, the Talking Heads film which came out at the sort of 86 um, Stop Making Sense, wasn't it? And um, uh -huh. True That's Stories right. and, and those kind of things and alongside Betty Blue and Diva and the Razorhead that we all went to watch at sort of 11 o'clock at night at cinema. So then, you know, so, so with that scene happening in New York, how were you kind of also managing it? Because obviously a lot of the people went, uh, a, a few kind of survived it quite easily, but quite a few didn't survive it so well. So were you able to sort of navigate that slightly tricky time in New York? Well, that's a really great question. And you're very intuitive to know some of these things. Uh, yes, actually, what happened was um, I, you know, I hung around with a lot of people and I probably shouldn't name any names, but they were involved with, with, with drugs, heavily involved with drugs. But, um, you know, I was kind of a, my drug of choice was marijuana and of course it was a uh, it was a problem in my life that i later had to deal with but it wasn't as debilitating and as bad as as some of these other drugs so but um so i really can't talk about you know how i'm better than anybody as far as drugs are concerned because i was kind of a druggie in a sense but i never really could afford it and i had this sort of deep kind of feeling in my heart that you know, I, the music is what really mattered to me and it wasn't really the scene and being in with the cool crowd as much as it was staying alive. And so I, I sort of sensed that that was not a good way for me to go to do drugs and to, to get, hang out all night because I needed to pay my, my rent and such as that. So I had like day jobs here and there and I had to constantly work really hard with my music to, to squeeze out a living when I was in New York. So you know, it was just more just I wasn't a uh, I wasn't, a, a as they say, a trust fund baby, you know, <laughs> and I wasn't a uh, already a big rock star like some people that had a lot of money and endless amounts of time on my hands. And that's probably what saved me in a lot of ways. Yeah, <laughs> so truth be known, <laughs> you know, I, I hung out with a lot of people and I probably might have fallen into that maybe more than I did had I been able to stay out all night and not have to be really accountable to waking up in the morning and making my rent and those kind of things. So, I so I did that and hung out with people, made a lot of friends. I played with, played with Johnny Thunders a little bit. I played, did a lot, a few things with Alan Vega. Of course you've heard of suicide. Yeah. 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 And, and so there's some of these people and I got to know them and, uh, and there's, these are great people. And uh, aside from the, the, the legend and all this other stuff, they're, they're interesting and, and, fun people. One person that I met was Giorgio Gomelski, who was a real important person in London in the early 60s. Um, and he was living there in New York. And I met him through, who's now my ex-wife, was someone I met through through Alan Vega. Uh, but um, basically, um, uh, Giorgio, uh, you know, came up later in my life when I was, I've been writing a book about Sonny Boy Williamson, 
who you're aware of probably. Yeah. Uh, the blues man that lived in London from last couple of years of his life. Um, but basically, uh, he was Sonny Boy's manager back in 63 through 65 and such as that. And so, you know, I did go back and, and connect with him on that and did a, about a fantastic two and a half hour interview and some other, you know, sound only interviews off camera um, with him about that, which has proved to be really good for my biography, which I'm actually just finishing up now. I got the budget to, to, to put that together about a year ago. And so I'm just getting all that done and ready to hopefully publish it, probably publish it this year. So that's one one positive thing that happened that was sustained from all that. But, uh, you know, I made a lot of friends, made a lot of longtime friends with people in New York and, uh, and you know, stayed friends with them. And some of them moved out to L.A. actually, because the New York scene, and I think you probably know this too from being a, as much of a music fan as you are, it seemed like it was um, really drifting away from rock and roll, you know, by the by the early 80s. Um, it rap became a really big deal and um dance records became a really big deal and acts like madonna were, were you know starting to come up and and you know all the entire all the entire hip-hop thing was coming up big time and and rock and roll seemed like it was kind of more just something that happened before whereas on the west coast in seattle uh it was still popular and then, of course, in L.A., there was a lot more rock bands and things going on. So I kind of drifted back to the West Coast in, in 84 and uh, was and then moved to, back down to L.A. in 85. Yeah. So, so when you and then the... I put put out put out an album on a French label uh, through a guy in, in L.A. that I still work with. He managed, takes care of all my publishing uh, called Sextine on the Lolita label and that came out in 1985. Yes. Um, and, and and that that was the the second album I did actually after that first Mobley's album. Although I put out a couple singles and things in between. I know. You know, this is good. I know. Eighty four. It's a it's a it's a, musically things are beginning to change. And also, you do your sort of one of the the, the my favorite sort of tracks on the album, which is um, I want to be yours as well. Was that Thank were you. you were were things coming together creatively quite? smoothly at that stage were, were you able to sort of um yeah start you know musically and creatively line things up you know things were going well um the band was that band had come together um and uh i had a couple of the well one member of the band the late dave drury drummer he came out to new york with me for a while and was playing with me out there and sort of you know we were wanting to play together and so when i got back to, to seattle in 84 and actually when i went back there along along the way i went back to do gigs and things uh he would play and then we decided to put this band together and call them Oberlies, of course and and uh you know so he uh he was in the band and then he helped me get a couple of other members together and we were really uh kicking out a lot of material. I was writing a lot of material and uh, as I always had been up to that point. And uh, you know, uh, we had plenty of good tunes and we were also doing quite a few cover songs that were unique, not like current, you know, top 40 or anything like that, but like unique cover songs. Like we did a, a Wayne or Jane County song down at Max's, which you've probably heard hopefully. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. And then we did, uh, we did, uh, you know, uh, so quite a few Sonic songs because everyone was 
I was really into the Sonics and some of my friends were, so we used to do Sonics songs, the band, other band from the Seattle Tacoma area. And then we did, oh, a lot, Flame and Groovy song, Teenage Head. We did, uh, uh, you know, uh, Obscure. Oh, you know, the other record we did, song we did was New Guitar in Town, which was by a band from England called The Lurkers. And oh, um, yes, The Lurkers, yes. Yeah, we did a cover of that song, New Guitar in Town, which was actually the version I first heard was the one that uh, John Plain, Honest John Plain and Pete Stride did an album called New Guitar in Town. And that was where I heard it. It was a good song. We covered that one. We covered a bunch of, you know, like I say, obscure covers, not so much anything that anybody would be considered like a club standard or something like that. And then, of course, all, all of our original tunes. So we were kind of a, a fairly fertile, creative uh, rock and roll band. And then we moved to L.A. in 85. And uh, a lot happened there. So <laughs> I don't know where to cut myself off. Sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's kind of interesting you mentioned Jane County because um, I did an interview with this guy called Jim Lumiere. Yeah, uh -huh, Jim. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I know him. The famous Jim, which is, how do you pronounce his surname? It's... Uh, you know, um, I've never really encountered that. I've just been Facebook friends with him for, for a few years now and he's he and I have had some good conversations. Yes. On, well I know that he kind of manages kind of uh, Lumia maybe. Yeah, Lumia. Right. Lumia. So, um, it sounds it sounds like it's a uh, an Italian it's a, name. It's a, yes, he's Italian. Yeah. But Lumia. He, maybe Lumia. I don't know. Yeah. But um he's a cool dude. And um I know he's that he manages cool. the old um Wayne Jane County. So did you sort yeah. of come across Jane Wayne in the sort of yes. And watch yes, I did. And sort of come across the live shows. Uh, you know something? Um, I came across James County actually more when, when I was in Los Angeles. Uh, a guy who's from Seattle who actually also played in a bunch of cool rockabilly bands. He played in with Sleepy LaBeef and he played with, uh, was it Tab Falco? Um, and a couple of bands. But he was a kind of a punk rocker. He played in a in a early Seattle punk band called The Veins with Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses. Um, and, but he, uh, in, in, in 1979, his name was Chris Crass. And he was, <laughs> he's probably best known for being the original drummer in the Muffs and that they played on their first album on Warner Brothers. Um, but um, yeah, Chris Crass and I are friends going way back. Uh, we sort of had, our families were friends and such. And when do, I knew him way when he was a little kid and everything, but Chris Crass and I were, were uh, friends, but Chris um, and I went out to a club and uh, I introduced him to, I think I introduced him to, to Jane or maybe it was the other way around. I think he actually introduced me to Jane and Lee Black Childers uh, who were in LA. This was probably in about 1987 and they were in LA and I got a chance to hang out with Jane quite a bit and talk about stuff and Lee as well. And uh, stayed in touch with Jane, not so much Lee, stayed in touch with Jane and, uh, you know, had a couple of good conversations here and there about the music and about her, her story. And, um, and then Chris uh, put together a little uh, band with, with her of Seattle people, Kim Warnick from the Fastbacks and Paul Soldier, who is a Seattle musician, um, played with a bunch of bands, including Duff McKagan and a few different bands. Um, and they did a they did a show in Seattle that I wasn't here for. Uh, I was in in L.A. Um, as far as and that was apparently pretty good from everybody. What everybody said it was a big sellout show and and such. And that was that might have been in around 19, 
80 or 88 or 89. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I can't say that I saw Jane County live. I met Jane County in New York uh, just very briefly, but really only really talked to her um, in LA. So that's my Jane County. Yeah, so I just wondered if you'd seen Jane, and Jane County and the Truckers, which is kind of one of her oh, other. Oh, yeah. That was a great album, um, and it's kind of hard to find. Uh, I, I find that really sad that 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 album didn't come out, you know, at that time. It, it would have really helped her career and 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 kind of spurred her along because it was so closely tied to David Bowie's thing, and it was very cool, you know. Um, she claims that David Bowie ripped off a lot of her ideas for Diamond Dogs. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I've listened to. Uh, Queen Age Baby, which some people feel is is a rebel rebel borrowed things from. And I don't really hear the similarities, but I'm sure that maybe there's something there. You know? Yes, I, I realize that rebel rebel. And um, yeah, don't mention that in front of Jane. I think she you know, wouldn't be able to cope because I think they're so kind of, you don't know if you've got your mother in a twirl, you don't know if you're a boy or a girl. And I think, you know, it's like that's. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, something that is in, oh, that's in that, uh, it's in, that's the line in Queen Age Baby. Right. Oh, geez. Yes. Well, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's fairly, uh, fairly direct. Yeah. <laughs> but, right, you know, look at David Bowie. I mean, though, the other thing is that David was so, so talented and it's just so amazing. If you look at it from the, you know, the 30,000 foot view that he would put out a song, a song like Rebel Rebel, which has become this huge rock and roll standard. And then only one album and one year later puts out Fame, which is like this really credible piece of funk. And it's like, who else is that? Who else could do that? You know what I mean? It's just amazing. <laughs> it, is, it is amazing. So look, 80, 84, when you brought out Sixteen, which obviously you probably wouldn't be able to get away with now, yeah <laughs> exactly and I remember when we were growing up in the i remember you know hearing interviews with rock stars or rock musicians they when they said you know why did you used to get into music and they used to say sex drugs and rock and roll no one says that anymore do they i think suddenly someone said don't say that anymore just say don't say the sex drugs and we should all be in prison anyway yeah. that's just another point but then at that point in the uk you know we'd had that sort of post-punk period with you know bands like i suppose television the gang of four you know, Public Image Limited, and then sort of sure. 80, 83, 84, you know, we had the Smiths that came along and suddenly, you know, we had this indie sound that happened. And then in That's the right. charts, we in the charts, we had that Trevor Horn production, te, uh, Thomas Dolby, you know, this kind of really kind of electronic kind of vibe. And you Big, had huge drums and all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, so, so <laughs> dated, you know, but it was like Spandau <laughs> Ballet, you know, yeah. and Duran Duran, you know, we had the sound of, you know, Tina Turner and uh, Dire oh, Straits, sure. all that kind of stuff. But then where you went, you went sort of straight to hair metal central, didn't you? No, not actually not. You know, it's funny. I went to L.A., but it was hair metal, metal central. But I was really just kind of I wasn't part of that. Um, I was kind of I don't know where I existed there uh, as far as any sort of uh, category. Um, I the Moberleys were pretty popular band there and drew and drew pretty big crowds uh for a while but we really didn't fit into the hair thing um the americana rock kind of john cougar melon camp and that kind of thing really wasn't who we were uh, uh the cow punk thing really wasn't who we were 
it was just kind of, you know, we were just um, this band that was, you know, influenced by, like I mentioned, these T-Rex and and the Beatles and and uh, and the New York Dolls and and that kind of stuff and uh, and all this obscure, you know, pop that we talked about. The Kinks, of course, the Kinks are probably the biggest touchstone of my career. But you know, I mean, really. It was just kind of we sort of didn't fit in to the to the mold of anything, and I think that's what maybe scared the record labels. They're going, well, these guys aren't Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses. They're not, you know, uh, you know what was big that made it as a pop thing back then. Probably nothing really. Pop rock was kind of considered well, like for instance, uh, the Outfield or something like that. So it was like. You know, we just or Richard Marx or whatever this that kind of stuff. <laughs> so we didn't really fit into anything that was like you know that they could kind of see. We were sort of our own deal, and we kind of insisted upon being that way. So it just didn't kind of click. We did a, a deal with Peter Buck from REM, produced uh, most of an album for us uh, for EMI Records, and uh, we were you know we were on the way to putting out an album with EMI. And uh, basically they merged with another label and that label got rid of like all their kind of budding rock projects and rock bands that they had. And, and they only kept, uh, I think David Bowie and uh, Brian Setzer and uh, which we've already mentioned here today. And uh, also the Red Hot Chili Peppers were the three bands that they kept and they dropped about 30 acts and we were one of them. So that kind of, that kind of hurt the band it kind of gave us a stigma in LA, I think, according to some people um, that we, you know, we'd been tried and it didn't work. And so that kind of ended up kind of discouraging the band. And then the band broke up about a year later, uh, the Moberleys. And uh, I just started working with other folks. I work with, uh, Kelly Wheeler, who was in a band called Psycom, that he after he left that band or who was fired or whatever, they got a new guitar player and they became Jane's Addiction. Right. So he was kind of close to stardom himself. <laughs> and then uh, and then uh, uh, two other guys. One was Mike Chekai, who was a guy that I'd met in New York, but we stayed friends and and talked a lot about working together. And then we he moved to LA at the same time I did, and we started writing songs together a lot. He was a drummer for the Fuzz Tones. You probably remember the Fuzz oh, Tones. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he was, I guess they were kind of sort of a band that lived in the netherworld between hair metal and, I guess, college radio or something. And then um, and then there was, of course, yeah, I, I, that's another thing, college radio. We, we kind of could have maybe been a bigger deal on college radio if we had records up. We were kind of kind of struggling to get records out down there but basically what happened was um al block was the other guy that we worked with he was a bass player his brother kurt block from the fastbacks you've heard of the fastbacks yeah. okay you know and then but al was in concrete blonde right prior to that and he he just left concrete blonde which was a big band over here i don't know if they, if they how they did over in england not so big not so big, yeah. So basically, yeah, he was. They had a couple of AM, a couple of radio hits over here in the in the mid to late '80s. But he he left that band and joined us, and we kind of started playing around and did a bunch of recording. And through that process, you know, Mike stayed with the Fuzz Tones, so he left and do a Fuzz Tones tour of Europe or something like that. And so we kind of sort of struggled to kind of figure out what to do next, and then that really didn't come together. Al ended up joining a band called Wool, which was sort of a 
an offshoot of of the grunge scene in Seattle. They were like somebody from Dave Grohl's old band in Washington D.C. or something like that. So, but but a good band. And Al was in them for a few years. Made a few records on Polydor. And so, uh, and then Kelly went on to be more of a graphic artist professionally, the, the guitar player. So we kind of split ways, but I ended up recording a bunch of stuff with these guys and then worked with this producer and produced my first kind of album after all this um, and that I ended up have not getting out until I put it out on my own label in 1992. So I went through a bunch of other weird things in this time frame too, David. I was start. I worked as a stock broker and kind of person, investment broker in Beverly Hills, California Excellent. for about four, for about four years. Yeah. And so I was kind of, I had money to work with. So I was kind of recording and stuff and I was doing solo, solo shows and things, but uh, it was kind of a weird time in my music career. I really wasn't in a band or anything like that. I was too busy with all these other things. So, but uh, yeah, it was after that whole experience, I kind of learned that I don't want to do that in my career for life, even though it's obviously a great way to make money. And so I, uh, I moved back to Seattle. I kind of went through a divorce of the lady I told you who I met through Alan Vega and those people. And uh, my dad was kind of about ready to pass away, which he did about a year or so later. And I moved back to Seattle in 92 and I put out this album, which was called Pop Top. And I started meeting a lot of people in the quote unquote power pop, you know, scene that was kind of starting to happen. And the internet was just sort of starting to happen. And, and so that's kind of where I was then, you know. Yeah, well, absolutely. Did you feel, because obviously we all saw tra trade, in, trade in places, did you, were you slightly influenced by the excitement of trade in places with your, and was it, was it kind of Reagan's kind of, you know, economic growth of, of kind of the 80s that you, you slightly got excited by? You know, for you know oh, as far, oh, you're talking about, you're talking about the, the stockbroker thing. Well, you know, it's funny about that. Um, these guys in, uh, invested into the Moberleys and we recorded um, a three song demo with Jeff Eirich, who was the uh, producer of the Plimsolls and a number of other bands in LA. And the Plimsolls were friends of, of mine and, and still are. And uh, so I thought he'd be really good. And it, he kind of did some weird things. He brought in these quantized drums. Everybody was always trying to make the big hit, you know, and it was, the 80s was so weird with all the, different technology stuff. People are just so lost, really, if you want my opinion, but there's all the synthesizers and drum machines and things. It's obviously come a long way since then. But um, basically, we, you know, uh, they financed this this demo of, of, of ours. And uh, I just, I was kind of, you know, when, when the Moberly's kind of were sort of on the rocks and kind of, well, we were still together, but it, it, it was like we weren't we didn't we sort of lost that deal we got hooked up with this big management deal with these guys that managed uh the eagles and jimmy buffett and white snake it was just a big huge management company called howard kaufman or uh, frontline management and they promised they were going to get us a record deal and they never did and all this other junk so we're kind of going through this sort of kind of rough period doing all that and i and i, I told these guys look i need to make a, a living i'm really kind of not I don't have an income. It's kind of, it's hard right now. So they got me going on this, on this thing and sort of trained me to be a, a stockbroker type person as a kind of an entry level cold caller, essentially, you know, as you've seen in some of these movies, the people that call on the phone and get people to listen to the spiel and stuff. And, um, 
And I sort of did that for a while and was pretty good at it. And they got me licensed. And then I started being a licensed rep and all this other stuff. And, you know, it was, it was that time. It was very much it portray, as portrayed in movies like, uh, you know, what was the one with uh, Martin Sheen? Um, oh, Wall Street. Wall, Wall Street. Street. Yeah. <laughs> <Remember> that? <laughs> Gruesome stuff. And that was very much the kind of people that it was. And I just, and the key thing, I, I just didn't, I, I was making good money and it was, but it was also so cutthroat and so kind of cold and cold blooded type of a environment um, of people. And I just decided, you know, I can make money doing this. I could do a lot of things in my life and my life is kind of short and I want to do what, what I love. So I just pretty much tossed it and, and like I said, moved back to Seattle and where I was able to actually squeeze out a little bit more of a living just playing music and have since been here and yes. been been a, for you know made most of my income from playing music what i haven't made from playing music has been from things related to music um like journalism and uh uh booking and production and things like that so uh you know and writing and songwriting uh I wrote a musical and i put done some tv and things like that so yeah so basically i've been a professional in this whole market up here ever since 1992 and uh, it's been 28 years. And now at this point, David, um, I am pretty serious about, about it branching out from this market. Um, you know, I put all these albums and I have, you know, people that have heard them and like them and stuff, but I sort of got this kind of, I guess the word for it would be, uh, I got disenchanted with the record business and the whole idea of getting signed and you know, dealing with the whole record business shuffle. And as, as time's gone on, I think the record business sort of took care of itself. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it was interesting because you'd gone to LA during that period. Of, there was bands like, is it the, uh, the Pandoras, who was a sort of... Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. An outfit who, uh, who sort of made it big. And also, like you said, then they morphed into, or members morphed into the, the Muffs as well. Had well, the moment. Muffs and the Pandoras is funny. They, I don't look at them as having made it big i look at them as being a really good band the pandoras were i wouldn't say made it big but they were probably bigger over there um they were a, a pretty good success locally and that's kind of my sort of my entree into la was through randall wixon who i mentioned before and he has wixon music now and like i said he he um administers my 135 compositions and published uh, co-writes and all that kind of stuff and which is a great thing for me because he's got a really successful company they've got all kinds of stuff there like tom petty and pink floyd and stuff but at any rate um he introduced me to the the pandoras and i sort of knew about them sort of through the media through magazines i guess over in england the magazine would have been bucket full of brains remember them yes yeah, yeah. And uh, so and so I knew about them and liked what I'd heard. They were kind of a garage band and and I got to see them a few times and uh, got to know them a little bit. And uh, and um, and then, of course, Kim uh, played with Chris Crass, who was friends of mine and who, you know, uh, in uh, in the Muffs. And so and then, of course, other people I knew played in the Muffs too, Jim Laspiza who I knew from, from when he first moved to LA and I was doing some stuff with his guitar player, CJ, the late CJ Buscalia. And then also I knew uh, Roy, the drummer from the Muffs, also after Chris Grass, 
who was in a band with my roommate in 1987, 88, and 89 in West Hollywood uh, that had a band called the Leopards. And he was, Roy was, was working with those guys. And so I, yeah, sort of, you know, I sort of knew a lot of people involved with that and, uh, and uh, especially Kim and, uh, you know, so the Pandoras were, uh, we're we're a we're a great band and and the Muffs were especially great. I really like them a lot, and it's sad that she she passed away this last year or so you know ago. Yes, very. Yeah. But then you must have been thinking, you know, because a lot of the people I speak to who make it or don't quite make it often mention the T word. Timing is everything. You know, you can be there. Timing, sure, yeah. Timing is, yeah. is, is it. And you know, I remember there's a guy called Richard Strange in the Doctors of Madness who said we were. Two years remember too that. early for punk, but everybody in the audience formed punk bands and had that moment that. where they kind of missed the boat, really, because he said we were twenty-five, we're too old, and that was the yeah, exactly. And also, they just kind of had lost the kind of the momentum, and people were, yeah, you know, you know, the sixteen, eighteen-year-old kids want that that new band. Sure. They, don't, they don't want to hear the Beatles or yeah, sure. And I, and I and I and I and I you know and I I understand that and I, I actually benefited from that quite a bit when when I was younger too. So it's just, it is just what it is. And um like I said I love music and I'm playing it and I'm playing live with a really good band and my intention really is to uh is to go over to Europe actually and play. I'm working with an agent over there. And I'm probably going to be heading over there to, to play. So that would be kind of my my next move, um, as well as uh, probably do more traveling around the United States. I've played gigs around the United States, but I like I think I'm going to kind of focus on doing a lot more of that festival and concert series kind of gigs and things like that. So that's kind of been going to be my thing. And so I I'm in a position now where I've got a a ver- fairly strong catalog of of material, and I've got a band that's really pretty and a show that's very well put together over time of working in this market over here and we're used to working hard and working long and all that and uh yeah so i i'm 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 in a pretty good spot to go out there and really make it make a splash i think right now with with uh people who just like music um obviously uh i have a kid who's 19 who's in college and uh she likes my music and the, the kids around her are amazed that I'm able to do what I do because they don't really know anybody that can play songs just by listening to them. Everything is all about, you know, dialing something up on your phone and, and, (laughs) you know, actual, actual musicians don't really play that big of a role in their lives, you know, or songwriters for that matter, you know, songwriters, the songs that are, that come out of the, of the digital technology are, uh, are not the same as the songs that come out of pianos and guitars and things. So, for them, it's kind of a big mystery. Uh, they're always going to like what they like and the stuff that they're that's getting fed to them on in these big media platforms. But I, I just think that there's people out there that like music, and there's people some some of whom actually know my music and enjoy it. So I'm going to go out there and do what I do, and 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 uh, do it till the day I die. I guess basically, David. Yes. So look, <laughs> just going slightly back, because obviously you came from Seattle, you mentioned, then you went back there. Did it? Yeah bit strange at that moment where you know for me you know like I was saying a bit earlier you know there was there there was a real five-year period I mean I realize that most bands have a five-year narrative they especially do in the 80s and the ones I've interviewed you know they get together they have that 12-month honeymoon period they love each other and in this country you know John Peel was this DJ who 
you know, would give you all sort of flexi disc. Oh, you remember flexi discs and and sure. a, a, a play, and then you'd get a John Peel session at the you know the BBC, and you know Del Griffith from Mott the Hooper was one of the producers, and you go, wow, well, sure. everyone found him quite grumpy actually. Um, but then that that gave the band that right, okay, next album we're doing well. And the UK, as you know, is tiny; it's absolutely small. But every little city in town had an indie night, so you know people would get in their transit van, and you'd be able to play a few gigs. Things going well for the band, you know. And then the second album, you know, the classic, or even third. And then, you know, things started to sort of, the, the wheels were falling off the, 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 um, the band, <laughs> quite literally. And if any band ever does America, they always go, and we came back and split up, because they always seem to finish them all. So it's kind of interesting. So five years is kind of quite the narrative. But then, you know, like I said, in 83, the Smiths came along, bang, you know. 87, they break up, you know, the party's over. And all those bands who were in that scene had been around and had made no money and they'd fallen out with each other and thought, we've had it. But also the other thing that happened in 87, 88 um, was ecstasy came along. You know, it suddenly changed the soundtrack <laughs> and suddenly people, you know, the 16 to 18 year olds suddenly wanted drugs and a different drug, I suppose, but they wanted yeah. to dance to the Stone Roses, the Happy Mondays, the Soup Dragons you know, Primal Scream, all that kind of vibe. And if you weren't a band who were going to quickly go, right, we're going to have a remix album when we're going to do some dance tracks, it was basically like the end of the road. But then you had from Seattle, you know, the great grunge kind of explosion, which kind of knocked out, you know, it was kind of, it was like one of those war games you used to see the, you know, on the, uh, you know, TV, you know, Second World War, where people would be pushing these little things around the table as, you know, armies were advancing. So, you know, if one thing didn't get you, something else would get you. So, you know, the dance scene, then Seattle grunge scene, most of those bands just went straight into the bar. <laughs> Same with the hair metal scene, too, and in <laughs> L.A., too, yeah. I mean, it's just it basically that the Seattle uh, bands just really blew it out of the water, and that was great, and I felt a lot of civic pride for that, and uh, and it was wonderful. I really wasn't able to fit that great into that scene either, but but I kept, but I was but I but I got gigs and I played and and survived. But yeah, I mean that was a time. I mean the the one band that that sort of came out of that all those bands that really I really liked and I don't know how you feel about them is Oasis. I thought they were a really strong band and a lot of people complain about the, who they are as people and all this other junk. I don't care about that. I mean I. I'm, you know, I'm a liberal person, a progressive and such as that, but uh, I love Elvis, even though he was a racist, he was a good singer. And I love Johnny Thunders, even though he was a junkie. And I love music, regardless to what people are in their life. It's just what's in between the tracks that I care about, you know? Yes, well, I'm, I'm and Oasis had great songs. I mean, they had really did have fantastic songs. Um, I love the first two albums especially of course but they they still put out some okay stuff but uh i mean those first two albums were just fantastic i don't know how you being over there i'm sure you were much closer to what was going on with that yeah i mean just on that first point or the point before that i mean you know when you with the smiths you know we've got you know i've got yeah. morrissey who you know i adored in the 80s and thought it was okay yeah, in the too. 90s and then it's like oh my god this is getting worse and worse you know you are some of your views and comments are like it's yeah, it's, it's rough, rough, rough road. <laughs> and I, another band from that era that I really love from England was The Cure, of course. I, I yeah. like a lot of their stuff, you know. 
and you know what and of course they made a big splash over here too and such and actually love and rockets had some really good moments i thought here and there yes they, were they the ones from bauhaus or the member from bauhaus was that exactly one? bauhaus yeah exactly and of course i like bauhaus you know especially love their their covers of david bowie and t-rex you know I would, yes. you know well, but, you know. in, interesting enough, actually, Pete Murphy's solo albums, I find the first ones up to... The good first, stuff, yeah. Because he had a band called The Hundred Men, and they were a really good band of musicians who have oh, a cool. phenomenal CD. And if you listen to those first three or four albums from the late 80s to the early 90s, there are some absolutely classic. His vocal is beautiful, but that band, The Hundred Men, check it out, it will blow your mind. But yes... I'll so, check it out. So when... Oasis and Britpop came along. It was very kind of interesting and exciting. Not just like Oasis, but they, they kind of returned to the guitar sound again. Because yeah. to be honest, I didn't get into the club world that much. I wasn't really just yeah. going to go raving. I was kind of into, you know, a band really. So when right. I suddenly saw these bands like Pulp came along, Sleeper, yeah. Elastica. Um, Blur. Blur as well, you know. I was a little bit bored with the Blur Oasis kind of, you know. It was a bit like the. I, I hear you. I hear you. you know. I, it, it was a, it was a, it was a cool thing for a while, and I liked it. Um, but it didn't really change my life. Like for instance, T Rex or David Bowie or the Beatles or the Kinks. But I liked it. I, I enjoyed. It. I saw. It, I saw it came from a really good place. It reminded me a lot of Slade, actually. Truthfully, you know. Yes. I, well, it had that kind of a you know English traditional music kind of feel to it as well as the rock and roll kind of love and and you know adulation kind of thing which was two things I liked so <laughs> it's good two things so, is good so when the in the last three years now you released yeah. not changing and then you right. had jokers idols and misfits that's a collection yeah. isn't it the latter is a collection of stuff that's right that's a collection yeah well, there's a number of new there's a number of new tracks on it as well but it's a collection of cover tunes uh, that go all have some history. Um, about half of them have never been released before, though. And uh, about two thirds of them or more have never been released on any of my albums. And uh, because they were on, like, for instance, tribute albums, things like that. Uh, I was on this Beatles tribute album it was 40 years ago today I did happiness is a warm gun but i never put it on any of my albums and then i i had uh did uh, i can see for miles for a who tribute album that pete townsend co-sponsored and that was really exciting and uh but these had never been any on any of my albums so i i included them in this because i fit, figured it fit the concept of this album really well yes so, absolutely yeah. So is it the case then, and I've met this, you know, with various other people I've interviewed, that you've been excited to be archiving your material and back catalogue and just making sure it's all nice and sorted? That's what I've been doing, yeah. And it, I mean, I have, a, like I said, I have a kid that's 19 and uh, she wants to be a lawyer and I'm real proud of her and she's working in school right now pretty hard and she's works worked really hard outside of school doing little things to make money and things. So she's, so I'm kind of want to make sure that I get all this stuff together. So when I go somewhere else, <laughs> that this is kind of together and it's something that she can, she can manage, you know, there's, yes. a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of songs and I believe in, uh, and nothing's really much happened to them as far as anything major. But I also, through my, you know, through my studies of, of music history, uh, specifically with the Sonny Boy thing, 
realize that a lot of things happen with music after long after people are gone. So, you know, you got to sort of get that together if you, if you care about it, which yes. I do. Well, absolutely. Did you see, I don't know if it's available in the UK, there was a really good film recently on the Nightingales, Robert Lloyd from the Nightingales. The film's called oh. King, King Rocker. And uh, it's talk, cool. talks about his life. And uh, yes, if you get a chance, do, do check it out because it is very amusing just talking about his very early days. And bizarrely, when they started making the film and they thought, well, we, have we got enough material? He was a very really big fan of uh, the Ramones. And when the Ramones first came to London, he went down to see them. And there's some photographs that Danny Fields took. And it's like, cool. oh my God, that's, that's Robert Lloyd in the background. And he, and he sort of wrote letters to Joey and, and they still have these... Uh, letters and they sort of brought them in the film so it was it was a really nice touch with dear old wow Danny. i that's something else um if you could maybe send that to me by email i'd like to see it that sounds good you're, you're i'm probably, not aware of that well you, yeah. you probably are aware that a lot of people you know and I, i've got this thing that the passing of time between 25 and 30 years suddenly there's been all these films that came out there was one on the wedding present the go-betweens the chills the slits the dolly mixture um, right, know, Robert Lloyd. You know, suddenly all these people are going right. We can make. We should make a film about this person's amazing life. So, it does. It does kind of happen because I think when people make material and do art, you know, you go, oh, that's lovely. I'm really busy at the moment, and you just you take you take it a bit for granted, don't you? You just go to the club, you see three really good bands for two pound fifty, but then you look back, you know, and you look at the lineup and think, bloody hell, that's just amazing. You look at that, you know, yeah. at the time yeah. we didn't really appreciate it, but I think, I think as we look back, you, you know, it's not just a rose-tinted sunglasses syndrome. It's more the fact that you think actually that that's quite nice. And I've gone back and listened to bands that I missed the first time because. You couldn't always hear a band the first time in the 80s. You know, that was always right. a bit tricky, you know. So um, it is a good a good thing to do. And obviously you've done it yourself. So um, it, yeah. it's kind of the second wind. Well, the, the Not Changing album was really exciting for me because it was all pretty much new material and, and songs that I had written before, but sort of I kind of put them together. Like some, a lot of the songs I'm Not Changing are actually originally from three two or three different songs kind of rewritten and sort of with new, it was all, it was all song, it was all new material that I put together, all new stuff that I put together. So that was really exciting. And I'm planning on doing that again. Um, and, you know, and it's my focus is kind of doing that here fairly soon. Uh, but this, this Joker's album has come out. And then I've also got this um, album, Seattle, New York, LA, which came out on a French label called Pop the Balloon in 2001. And they were, they're still in business. The guy that ran it was a really nice guy named Gilles Raffier. He, he passed away right at the time that the album came out. But uh, his, his friend um, took, took it over at Fabienne and uh, had kind of by within about three, four years, kind of started putting some more things out. So he's kind of still doing it. But I got this, I got the album and and the rights to it. And so I basically put um, it out on CD back in 2000 and where was it? 2004, I reissued it on my label over here. Um, just this, just the, basically just the CD with no cover and would sell that at my, at my gigs. Cause I was just playing all these live, I was playing 200 live gigs a year. I played 200, I basically played about 200 live gigs a year for the last 20 years. So and so, or so, so basically I've just basically just playing live gigs and selling CDs off the stage and sometimes through social media. 
Um, but that never really made it to downloads and streaming and all that stuff. So I'm just now putting that out and I'll send you a link. That's just, just now come out on for download and streaming. And I'm going to be promoting it a lot to a lot of the radio stations that have been playing, not changing and jokers. So it's uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's a sort of a new kind of, kind of presence I've had with, uh, with radio shows and indie radio stations, the few that there are and, uh, indie rock. And then of course, podcasts. And I've got a, a nice little circuit of people that have been picking up on my stuff. So I'm going to start reissuing my older stuff. I think you may have seen my catalog list of what's what I've done. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start one, one by one reissuing those albums and then promoting singles from them and such as that digitally. And, uh, <laughs> excuse me sorry about that and um <laughs> and so uh that's kind of i'm kind of also kind of making sure all that stuff is available digitally for download and streaming and such blimey and um so you've got this year you have got the book also sort of coming out as well haven't you that's right exactly so a lot going on and i got that the, the manuscript is finished um i have a uh, one of the top if not the top noted uh blues historians fact checking it for me and and helping me with that and probably writing some sort of a forward um and i put together this very phenomenal timeline of sunny boy's life which that was kind of a weird story though to be honest david because he was he spent his entire life in of his the famous part of his life from from 1941 on when he's had the first blues radio show he he spent that entire time lying about who he was, what his real name was, where he was from, what age he was, anything to do with who he really was. So it it was kind of an interesting exercise <laughs> finding out the facts about him, but I, I pretty much found out more than anybody else has. So I got a lot there. Oh, and by, by, yeah, so, so that's going to be interesting to a lot of people. And, uh, and it's, it's actually an interesting story, David, because it's sort of the story through one person of the first hundred first 50 years of blues music blues based music on on record uh he started playing music in 1920 when he was seven years old um uh, playing the harmonica uh, in the church playing they called him reverend blue when he was six seven years old and and then uh and then for so and so then of course that's the year the first blues record was ever produced and and of course he he had success in the era of jukeboxes and in the early eras of independent distributors of american roots music and and of course radio he had the very first blues based radio show that he was a star of in 1941 and he opened up radio in the deep south and the mississippi delta region and there to uh to a whole host of people that went on to be you know major names in in American music history, such as Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, uh, Ike Turner, um, and, and just a bunch of others. So, and he was also traveling partners with Robert Johnson in his lifetime too, another famous legendary figure. And so just all that kind of stuff. And, and Elvis first heard the blues and tried to imitate it by listening to one of his shows and the shows of Howlin' Wolf, who he got his show through Sonny Boy on this radio station in West Memphis. So just a, a lot of people were influenced by the blues because they heard it on radio. And he was primarily responsible for getting blues on the radio and, and proving that it was a uh, something that could make sponsors money and down there in that, in that Memphis 
you know, deep south vicinity. So his story is important. And then, of course, he lived in England. He had this recording career that started about 1951 uh, and, and such with chess records and trumpet records. But then he went to England in 1963 and lived there for the last two years of his life and played with basically a who's who of the British invasion of the bands that were, you know, overtly interested in the blues. I mean, Rod Stewart's early band, Joe Cocker's early band, uh, Van Morrison followed him around like a puppy dog and, and ended up covering his songs a lot. Um, the Rolling Stones, of course, with his, the Rolling Stones manager was his manager. They, they, they just left the Rolling Stones and he was managing the Yardbirds at that time with Eric Clapton. Um, and then the Yardbirds, the Animals, Manfred Mann, the Moody Blues, just all so many bands, Alex Harvey, Soul Band, all these young teenagers that went on to be famous in the 70s, you know, or the late 60s, um, you know, Jack Bruce and so on and so forth. So, you know, that's kind of, I just sort of tell that whole story in this book uh, and and a lot about each chapter of this incredible life. And uh, he died in 1965, which is sort of where I got my first transistor radio and first started listening to rock and roll and first started taking it all seriously. So it's kind of the story of rock and roll up to, up to where I came in. <laughs> so that's my roots, I guess, but what came before me, that's what it's about. My God, that's, and, and just briefly, how long have you been working on that project? Well, that's, that's the embarrassing part about it. I got involved with this in 2012 and I was hired by a guy who had been a success in the securities business and in financial management. And he had done these interviews with blues people that were many of whom had passed away or were very near the end of their lives. He had done these interviews in the mid nineties, like the, the, for, you know, I guess it would have been, uh, you know, 15 years prior or so. Um, and, uh, and then he kind of put it on the shelf because of his own business situation. He had to kind of work on his company and get it up back on going. And, and so he kind of put it on the shelf and didn't do anything after he interviewed BB King in 2001, but he brought this, all this out for me and said, look, I've got this great thing, but he was kind of in poor health and, and he really couldn't do much, uh, as far as traveling or like that. So I just took it and kind of went through the stuff he did and realized there was a lot of holes in the interviews he did as far as I tried to fact check and sort of get do more follow-up questions with whatever artists I could or whatever people were were you know privy to their 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 information and just did, found as many you know published interviews as I possibly could to support uh, some of the basic important facts and then went out and got another I mean literally a hundred subjects to interview um, most of them on film on in HD. So I'll probably be putting out some sort of a documentary film to accompany the book as well. I have some, actually some interest from a company over there in doing that. So I'm going to see if I can put that together after I'm done with this book. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a great project. And, uh, and you know, it's taken a long time because this man died in early 2017. And with it went the financing of me doing this research. And the reason it took so long, we could have gotten it done a lot sooner than five years if it were not for the fact that his health was so bad. And he was kind of, it's kind of, I guess the word is quixotic, you know, Don Quixote. <laughs> he wanted he wanted to be involved with everything. And yet his health was so bad, he would 
I can't do it until I do this and get this in, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I feel better. But so we just kind of kept on, I just kept on working on this research and he was paying me to do that. So I continued to do that. Um, but it could have been finished and the product could have been put out there much sooner. So that in itself took five years, to the point where we had a finished manuscript or at least a first draft. And then, and then he, and then he, he died and then his brother sort of yanked all the financing and said after wasting my time for a year saying that he was going to do something and i don't know if i want this reprinted i'll probably get in trouble for saying this sorry about that so <laughs> you might want to skip that last quote yes. but i don't want to say anything about his brother because i'm i'm doing that now with other financing and you know i have to do it differently because i can't use any of his his brother the guy that financed its intellectual property so this is all way too much information but well, the key thing is <laughs> it took me a while to get financed again is what it yes. basically breaks down to and so i got the financing together in january of last year 2020 and uh and have since put this whole entire book together it's about 500 pages and it's really dense and a lot of very interesting stuff very it's not it's not dull there's plenty of uh I've been told that this actually would have a greater value as a mini series, kind of like a made for adults mini series, like they have so much now on Netflix and, you know, those kinds of channels. Uh, uh, <laughs> because there's so much, there's just so many con contacts within his life story with African American history, with, uh, you know, the history of the music business, with the history of the blues and rock and roll and, radio and all these and a lot of very famous names that sort of cross his path it, it could be a, a very interesting television series so with <laughs> and a lot of sex drugs and rock and roll as it were plenty, <laughs> nothing nothing short of the information that would interest people these days but uh, yeah i know the sex drugs and rock and roll is something you really don't it's it seems like it's it's sort of inappropriate and uh, <laughs> It always has been, I guess, but uh, it's it's. I think it's it is in sort of a new way now. Yes, I think, <laughs> yes, I luckily, luckily, I haven't. Luckily, drugs had not destroyed my life completely. I'm here. I'm still doing, still doing what I'm doing, and and happy that I never really got bad into really bad drinking or drugs. Yes, well, because recently I did an interview. Just you know, I mean, with Nick Nick Kent. Uh, the the yeah. NME writer who just brought out a novel, but he's written quite a few books as well. And, I uh, talked to Nick actually. I, I contacted him and he gave me some, got me got me a couple uh, a couple of good leads about Sunny Boy. Right. Oh, that's interesting. But I was just going to say because I heard him talking recently about his life and uh, his writing, and he mentioned that um, you know people that influenced him a lot. I think there's a guy called Nick Cohen who he said. He, mm -hmm. When he went to reread Nick Cohen's book, he didn't realize how much he'd copied that guy's style. Was is, has, is there any writers that you think, yeah, that was that was the person that really got me into being a a, a journalist writer? I, you know something, I will say that I, when I was very young, my mom, bless her soul, she just passed away this last year too at eighty nine. Basically, she bought me Lillian Roxon's Rock Encyclopedia, which from what I understand was the first book of its kind. It was a kind of an encyclopedia uh, with, you know, listings in 1969 or 68, I think, of all the bands, um, you know, of rock and roll history at that time, which was only really about 12 or 13 years old at that point. So, um, you know, it was, that was one, uh, and that kind of got me into reading about rock and roll. And then from there, I got a subscription to 
jazz and pop magazine from my dad who was really good to give me that in 60. I think he actually got me that before. It's all a blur right now as far as with the time frames, but I got that around the same time. And that had a, that, you know, they, 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 I was exposed to a lot of really interesting uh, rock and roll, like uh, the Stooges and things like that, that you wouldn't have found in, you know, 16 magazine or any of these pop magazines at the time so yeah so that was that was those were the early influences some of the writers in for jazz and pop were like john sinclair you've heard of john sinclair from that had the, was the manager of the mc5 oh yes, john, yes and he was he went to jail and for in in the course of the 60s radical movement and john lennon wrote a song about him on that uh album what was it uh the same album that had uh woman is the n word of the world that that album but yeah so so yeah 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 uh what's it called that album i forgot new york city or something i forgot what's i have to look it up i can't remember but it it was was but he had a rose song about john sinclair so i was interested i wrote was interested in what john sinclair wrote about he wrote about the blues and he wrote about these kind of more radical kind of bands like mc5 and the stooges and and Bob Dylan and all that kind of stuff. So it was interesting to me. And then after that, I was really into, I later, I like I said, a lull of, of really following rock and roll. I was kind of bored by Rolling Stone and all that stuff when it, it was, was, was riding high. But I got into, um, I got into uh, writers like Lester Bangs, of course, and Cream wow. Magazine. And, uh, and, you know, and then of course, uh, Ira Robbins and, uh, and uh, trouser press, and uh, you know, these are these are people that really inspired me. And then then I got involved doing my own little fanzine, like I said, Chatterbox. And that wasn't really me who did that. I was just kind of part of it, but it was it was part of who I am, you know. And then um, and then as time went on, I was an artist and I was doing my own thing, and I really wasn't writing. But I came back to that. Um, actually. This is something else that happened that was actually important to my writing career. Um, in 2005, I was hired. I need, well, I had been working on the side, making extra money, booking and producing shows with mostly kind of grandma, grandpa type of shows like oldies rock and country and things like that. Uh, Cause that was a market that I wasn't competing for with all the big fish and all that was just kind of a way I could make some money on the side, booking shows in casinos and fairs and things like that with artists like, you know, Crystal Gale and uh, Charlie pride and uh, you know, Mary Wilson of the Supremes and so on and so forth. And uh, so basically what happened is, um, you know, um, a f- friend of mine who uh we were i played a lot of basketball growing up and and hung around playing basketball that's kind of how i stayed in shape in the in the in the 80s and 90s and a little bit into the 2000s and uh and from i said look you know a lot about basketball we talk about basketball he said you could i could you could you could do this job and he got me this job working for uh a network which became yahoo um doing a a sports site and so what my, it was my job i was making a, a salary every month and it was my job to publish the articles of these pretty much amateur writers are getting paid very little money to write these sports articles um about uh, a local college team in seattle 
uh, the University of Washington football and basketball team. And so I would publish these at night after my gigs while I'm traveling around doing gigs in Montana or whatever, I, wherever I was at, or, or when I woke up in the morning before we had to drive the next gig or when I was had a day off, I published all these articles and I had a couple of photographers working for me. They send photos and I captioned the photos and I sort of did this at night and kind of through that whole process, you know, learned a lot about editing and, and fact checking, especially reporting, journalism, fact checking. And that really came in handy when I got the job working on the Sunny Boy thing, because at that point I knew how to, you know, fact check things and how to really, you know, make factual statements. And, and, and then I was more up on grammar and spelling and punctuation and those things. And that's obviously a big part of being a writer. So that's, that's also, that also contribute to it. And, and it was kind of, it was kind of part of the, it was sort of, it was the only thing that I've really done that wasn't directly related to music, but I found through the whole sports thing, and I kind of got burned out on football. Truth, I don't watch football ever anymore. But I kind, I, I, I kind of got found out through that whole thing, uh, David. That um, basically, um, you know, sports is just is entertainment. And uh, I mean, by the by the time by the '90s, and especially into the 2000s, basketball players were getting more groupies than rock stars. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It became sort of a <laughs> it became sort of a new kind of uh, place where the place where the action was, and so I could so I, I sort of covered it in that same fashion, and it was just uh, it was and it worked. So it was a way I was able to make a little extra money, and I didn't have to really be anywhere. I could just do it on the internet. So that's one of the miracles of the internet is you can work and not be there. You know, let somebody else be there. <laughs> yes this is quite interesting did you see the film the cream Ma uh, the cream magazine film that came out you know i haven't seen that and i'm really i'm kicking myself i want to see that i definitely want to see that i i i, I imagine it's 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 a kick in the pants is it good i haven't seen it myself I, I just need to sort of you can i think we'd be able to watch it online somewhere if i i you know paid five bucks or something so um I just wanted to what your your take of it was. So um, it's one of those you know it, it was it was great stuff. I mean, Cream Magazine, but I haven't seen it. Um, you know, another thing that was really big for me, truthfully, and I didn't really mention was was British magazines, um, especially uh, British writers uh, like from Melody Maker and uh, Nick Kent. You mentioned was a real important one, um, and uh, and and and. Uh, and and uh, new musical express and and sounds of course was happening back then and uh, there was a lot going on there it was hard to find those magazines over here but we'd we'd go find and we there was like a couple newsstands that would carry them in seattle we'd go find them and that would be a, a, a prized item to get the new melody maker you know yes absolutely yes <laughs> this is right. and i know that um simon reynolds who was in melody maker he's bought out quite a few books now so um most yeah. of his work is available. There was a few guys, and I'd have to, and and a few gals too. Um, I have to remember back um, that some of the names that would have to be fresh my my memory. Well, but well, I would imagine Charles Shaw Murray must have come. Charles Shaw Murray, yes, of course, he was a big big name for sure. Because he did one on Jimi Hendrix, and I think he's done one on blues as well, hasn't he? Yeah, he was he was another one. Yeah, and he was another one I I contacted with the Sunny Boy thing too. Yeah, right. There you go. So, look, last question: If you could sure. have said something to a an eighteen year old self starting out in that interesting world that is um, 
kind of music writing creativity is, is there anything that you would have just kind of wanted to whisper in their ear and say actually if you you know just look out for this or do that i just wonder what kind of top advice you would give you know it's really it's really that's a tough one because i look at music as being what really matters in the retrospect is actually the good music um the business thing is so hard to navigate and it always has been, um, you know, uh, whether you're talking about the era of Sonny Boy when, you know, guitar players, band members were getting 25 bucks a record for songs that have been used in a million things, you know, uh, and, you know, and then th on through the whole era of payola and rock and roll and, and just some of the weird stuff that happened in the record business. You've probably seen the, uh, you've probably heard about Morris Levy, the gang, ganged up uh, president of Roulette Records and all that stuff. I mean, there's just, the, the music business has always been kind of treacherous and, and nasty. I would just say, you know, do music that really you just, that really moves you in your heart and uh, don't listen to anybody says, look, you need to be doing this kind of music because in the final analysis, the stuff that really comes from your heart is the stuff that is people are going to probably like the best. Um, and, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of different life lessons to go into how you treat other people and how you network with other people that I could probably share too. But, uh, I think the primary one would be to, like, I look at the, the legacy of David Bowie, for instance, and the Beatles. I think the Beatles were the best example of this in the 60s. Every single record they made was different, and it was all exciting and new. Same with David Bowie. One record after the other, extremely in, integral, great work, as well as being, you know, advancing uh, his, his scope. And uh, to me, those are two careers. Prince is also a great example of an artist like that somebody who just kind of goes through and does really great work and it tends to progress um and and be different as as, you, as time goes on and uh i would just say to try to do the best you can to not do the same thing over and over and and do and 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 do music that really matters to you and and then it might matter to somebody else more i think than if you do what you think somebody else wants it to be for you yes this is true. I think this is, this is good advice. We well, thank that. you. It's, it's kind of a long, it's kind of long, it's sort of long-winded to whisper that, though. I figured out a way of saying that in a whisper. <laughs> but I wish, I kind of wish there was more people whispering in my ear when I was growing up. I, you know, I obviously made a bunch of mistakes and, uh, you know, did a bunch of things wrong, but, uh, you know, did the, did some things right, too. So, you know. Well, I guess, you know, and I'm here still, you're still here, and that's, that, is, that is kind of a very good thing, isn't it? So, you know, you can't say, well, in comparison to the people I grew up with, it's a very good thing. It's a, it's a unique thing, you know, it is, absolutely. You know, I think that's, that's kind of one of the key things, isn't it? But, um, Whether it be yeah. cancer or AIDS or now COVID and just a variety of other things that have happened to a lot of my friends that were very brilliant people that <laughs> more so than me, you know, but I'm still here, put it that way. Know, and good. i'm very happy <laughs> brilliant well look thank you and so what i'll do when i do this i can always send you the link and you can always put it wherever you know your you know followers fans and anybody else so they can always you can always kind of share it and then you know, well that i want for sure and i have i do i do quite a bit of that on social media and uh and 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 my website is is now being reconstructed because of covid it kind of took me out of business so uh, as far as the live gigs so i'm redoing that now because i'm working with that agent i mentioned to you before about going and doing that so i'm putting the whole new electronic press kit together and all that and i definitely will put 
uh, this in in that in that uh, sack. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you ever so much, Jim. Look, take care and uh, have a great day. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Take care. See you later. Bless you. Have, have, have a great day yourself. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. And that is how you say goodbye in a conversation. I know. I love keeping that bit in. Anyway, look, a massive thanks to Jim Baznight for giving me the time for that interview. Um, yes, just go and track him down on social media. He's there somewhere. Anyway, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86show and that is all good. Yes, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And also all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great evening. Stay safe.